Again, Acts chapter 26, and I'll be preaching through the whole chapter 26, but just reading a first section here in the beginning, starting with verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in rage and fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for these accounts of Paul's missionary journey Paul's return to Jerusalem, Paul's trial and witness for the name of Jesus Christ. May it be that we would believe this witness and the proclamation of who Jesus is, and that we would also learn to be his faithful witnesses and servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I appreciated Paul's introduction to Agrippa here because he's asking Agrippa to bear him patience. And there's a lot here, and I am going to try to go through quickly. And you know how my attempts at those are often not very good. But I am going to try to go through because Paul is putting a lot in here in his defense. He actually says that I'm going to defend myself from all of the accusations that the Jews have against me. And so here in this 
concise dialogue that Paul is having with Agrippa in Festus that he is covering a lot of ground. But I think he broke it, breaks it down for us in ways that if we can take a moment to focus on it, it is very encouraging and helpful for us, both in hearing his witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, but also presenting to us the nature again of the ministry that we too should adopt as we proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ in every area of our life. Here we see that King Agrippa is giving Paul an opportunity to defend himself, to speak for himself. Now, that may seem pretty natural to us, but that's not always the case. And if you have been paying attention through Acts, that the Jews are not necessarily interested in hearing from Paul. They want him dead. They weren't terribly interested once they heard a little bit from Jesus to hear too much of his defense either. In fact, often when Jesus or Peter or John the Baptist or Paul, in this case, have been speaking, they really want to mute that. They want them to stop the proclamation of the truth. And at times, even with Stephen, what did they do? They covered their ears. They do not want to hear. And King Agrippa here, which is Agrippa II, is giving Paul an opportunity to speak for himself. And I think it's important for us to think about that for a moment because even in the last chapter, Festus points that out, that it is a Roman custom to allow people to face their accusers and to give a defense for themselves. And Paul is going to appeal and connect with that because Where do the Jews have a particular law that speaks about defending and justice and righteousness? Would anyone know what book of the Bible where there are descriptions and instructions of how to justly deal with people who are being accused? Deuteronomy. It is from the law. He is going to appeal to his law. He's going to appeal to the Jewish law as he is also working with the Roman law. Again, we might not think that that's too big of a deal. You know, as Americans, we think that that's something that everyone should have a right to do is everyone has a right to defend themselves. Everyone has a right to be considered innocent until proven guilty. But that's not always the case, not even today, but especially throughout history. I was just reading recently about King... St. Louis the Ninth, and how in, he is upheld as being one of the great leaders of France. And one of the things that he brought to the forefront that had a tremendous impact on all of Europe was the very idea that people are to be considered innocent until proven guilty, until the case has been heard. And he was one who was taught by his mother to be deep into the Word of God. And he obviously read Deuteronomy. He also read the Proverbs that you need to be able to hear from the person that has been accused. And because of that, and because of the impact that he had on France, that people throughout all of Europe would come to him and to have him help in disputes of other particular trials. Now, don't assume that I'm giving King St. Louis the Ninth the you know a full stamp of approval. He had his mistakes, but he was one who adhered himself tightly to the law. And here in the beginning of this dialogue, we see that Luke finds it important not only to record Festus's um, comments in the past chapter, but also here that Paul is being given a chance 
to speak for himself. And that is very important because Paul is going to appeal to the same law throughout his defense that he is trying to connect with what these particular judges do in their own courts. And so Paul found the opportunity, and he actually found it to be fortunate that he would be able to be with King Agrippa here in this particular defense against all of the accusations for three particular points. Two of them mentioned here in the reading that we just did. One, in verse 3, he says that because you are aware of the Jews' customs. Now, Agrippa II here had been ruling long enough and also had a history long enough. He he is... It, I was talking to Jennifer, I said, I'm still having a hard time getting all of my hair straight. But at minimum, he was the grandson, if not the great-grandson, of Herod the Great. And so he has been here, he has been around, it's been a family tradition to be amongst the Jews for some time and understand what they have been teaching and what they believe. And Paul was finding it to be an, a fortunate opportunity that he would be able to appeal before Agrippa and ultimately to Caesar, that he is a just person, that he has not done anything wrong because he knows that King Agrippa both understands Roman law and Jewish law. He also knows in verse 3, it mentions that you are aware of the controversies that occur amongst the Jews. And particularly, I would think that he is thinking about the resurrection from the dead. And then later in verse 27 that we'll get to later on, he is also aware that Agrippa knows the prophets. He knows the prophecies. And so he's aware of not only the law, but he is also aware of the prophets. And if you know that even in what we have from Jesus' teaching, that if you have the law and the prophets, you ultimately have Jesus. And so the path has already been blazed, at least somewhat, in the mind of Agrippa, that could be very easily one to work with if God so desired to bring this person to an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. If we go back and look at verse 16, I just want to highlight when Festus made the comment about accusers face to face. He says, I answered them, he's talking about to the Jews, this is Festus, that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. I want to, again, I'm highlighting this particular part, even though it seems like it's just a normative kind of thing, that the law of God is important for us in being able to explain and evangelize other people. We must not only be adhering to the law, but when we are trying to appeal and trying to connect with people who do not believe, Often, many people, not always, but there is sometimes at least something to work off of, of their understanding of justice. Now, a lot of times it's very inconsistent, and sometimes it's just blatantly opposed. But if you get to know people long enough and well enough, you will know that there are generally things in their lives that are consistent with God's truth and law. And Paul knows this. And so he's not just doing this because he's looking for a way to get out of his situation. But as he is ultimately trying to present as a witness of Christ the kingdom of God, he is connecting with Agrippa 
and Festus ultimately on, based upon their understanding of the law. And so we see this being proclaimed. Paul is aware of this. He's actually finding it to be very opportune. Now, this kind of debating has gone on before. When we think about when Jesus was being persecuted by the Pharisees earlier on, this whole question of first hearing someone give their own defense also came up. In John 7, it says, The officers who were appointed to go after Jesus came to the chief priests. This is John seven forty-five through 52. And it says, The Pharisees said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one has ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Then Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied to him, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And that particular narrative there in that dialogue is indicating that the Jews often in their sin are inconsistent with their laws. Here they are supposed to be the ones who are upholding the law, but Nicodemus had to even correct and sober their thinking, wait a minute, does not our law have a provision in it that allows a person to give their own defense, that we are not to judge one without hearing and learning what he does? And what he's referring to is in Deuteronomy. Here in Deuteronomy 1, 16 through 7, it says, I charge your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother or an alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. This is Moses speaking. And then in Deuteronomy 17, it says, On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Proverbs 18 says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. This is the entrance to this particular dialogue. This is the entrance to the evangelism that Paul has an opportunity to have with Agrippa and Festus and the Jews and everyone who is there before all powers and all authorities. He is going to connect with them by having an adherence and understanding to the justness of God. And as he appeals to how Agrippa is thinking, when Agrippa is thinking about right things, Paul is hopeful that that will transition to actually an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And so Paul begins to lay out his evidence, his evidence of how all of these accusations are incorrect and how they are false. He knows what they know. He knows what Agrippa knows, and he understands it, and he knows what they accept. The first thing that he says is that I was the strictest Pharisee. And he says, the Jews know this. They all know this. They know this about me. I was one who was studied. I am one in the law. I understand the things that they are supposed to be understanding. So number one, I was the strictest of the Pharisees. 
Secondly, and this is one that he kind of summarizes as being the primary reason why he's on trial that day. He says, I have a common hope, the same hope that the Pharisees has. The reason that Paul is on trial is because Paul has hope. One, he has hope in the promises made by God to our fathers. Again, he is connecting himself with the Jews by saying, I have the same hope that these fathers are supposed to have. It's very much like in the Luther movie that we watched or in the Luther story, which is the reality that when he was at the Diet of Worms, he anticipated, or at least he presented that he was anticipating, that he would actually be able to give a defense that these church fathers would be one with him in understanding that once you could hear what I have to say and that I am adhering to the word of God, that you will understand what I'm saying, that you will agree with me. Now, I'm not saying that Luther was naive, but his posture and his presence with at least those particular judges, those who are supposed to be those who are hearing to the word of God, that if we are unified in the word, they should have understand what Luther was saying, and that if these Jews had the hope that they said that they had, then they should understand what Paul is saying. One, that there is a hope in the promises made by God, that in all the things that God said that he would do and is going to do has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and so they should understand that. Secondly, the hope of our worship. He said that these particular promises that they wish to attain is what caused the people of God to worship like they did, that for the whole idea of their worship was connected to the very hope in the promises of God that they were hoping for. And so here is this conflict and these accusations that Paul is coming in and trying to defile the worship of God. And he's saying, no, I am actually proclaiming the very hope that defines our worship. And then lastly, what he always hones in and what is always the primary focus is the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And then he even says right in front of them all, and I think at this moment he is turning his focus away from Agrippa and focusing on the others and saying, why is this incredible? You all are supposed to be those who are celebrating and focusing on the resurrection of the dead. And here I am here to tell you that that's been accomplished in Jesus Christ. That the very thing that supposedly defines you and who you are as Pharisees as opposed to the Sadducees is what I'm here to proclaim. And then he says to them, to him, that I am just like the accuser. So the first thing he does is he hones in on that, the primary point of why he is there and the primary reason why he is in, under trial is hope. But then he transitions and he actually connects even more with the Jews in saying, I am a lot like my accusers, but in their sin. One, that he was convinced to oppose the name and the authority of Jesus of Nazareth. Two, he was acting on the authority of the chief priests. And so he was appealing and saying, I was acting off of the same authority to go, even in my own being convinced, that I should oppose the power and name of Jesus Christ, oppose those who proclaim Jesus Christ. I was acting off of that authority. And then I imprisoned others. And I approved of their execution. He punished and tried them. 
he also tried to get them to blaspheme. But all the things that are occurring to Paul, he's saying, I've been there, right there with you. But when I did this, I persecuted them with raging fury. And there's where he hits the heart of the matter, is that he is revealing that it wasn't just the convincing of the mind. It wasn't just the authorities of the chief priest. It was the actual fury in their hearts. But there was something dark and twisted in his heart, just like there's something twisted in their heart, that he actually takes a moment and crosses around the line to his accusers, and he says, not only have I done the exact same things and surpassed in doing the things that you're doing, but my heart was full of raging fury. But then, as his greatest defense, he points out that he meets Jesus. He meets Jesus, the one who is ultimately being accused here. And here is where the trial transitions from being a defense for Paul, but ultimately being a defense for the name of Jesus Christ. I'm going to go back and I'm going to reread a portion of that, but read verses 12 through 18, if you would follow along with me. It says, in this connection, and this is, again, talking about when he was just like his accusers and doing the exact same things, when he was about that kind of activity, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, O Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in whom which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from, the, from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. As you see here that Paul transitions his defense to Jesus because he has ultimately been appointed to Jesus. That he meets the one who was primarily being accused. He encounters the power of God. And so the very first thing in his defense of who this Jesus is, is first the very power that he encountered when he met Jesus. That he was knocked off his feet, he was blinded, that it was a light brighter than the sun, that this power surpasses all other power that we could even imagine. And then he discovers through that encounter with the power that he was actually persecuting those who were of Christ. That the people that he was actually hurting, killing, and spreading out to other nations was of this particular power was of this particular God, this Lord, and that he was persecuting Jesus Christ. But then he says that he had to act on the authority of Jesus. Jesus appointed him. He appointed him to be a servant 
and a witness of Christ. And that is why it is being transitioned. Paul's not just trying to get out of this. In fact, he doesn't anticipate that he's going to get out of this. His primary goal in what he is presenting before Agrippa and before all of the Jews and before everyone he is encountering is to be a servant and a witness for Christ. And it is interesting if you can just take a moment to think about what Jesus told him. He says, I am going to send you to the Jews and the Gentiles and deliver you from. Or actually it was in, in, in reverse order there. I'm going to deliver you from the Jews and the Gentiles who am I sending you to. And that's the nature of the kind of God that he's having to work with. His particular authority is telling him this Jesus Christ is saying, I'm going to send you to the people that I'm going to have to remove you from because they're going to kill you. Those who do not accept what is being proclaimed, they're going to try to harm you. That's a very interesting order of instruction to receive from anyone that I'm going to be that who sends you to and from. But the primary focus here, in light of what he just said before, when he made himself just like his accusers and highlighted that it was the raging hate and fury in his own heart, he says that my proclamation is to open the eyes of others, to turn them from darkness to this same light, from Satan to the forgiveness of sins. Just as it is the resurrection that restores That the ultimate proclamation of that resurrection is to highlight that there is forgiveness of sins. That this same hate that I experienced with you, brothers, as I also went about and killed those who are of Christ, that there is forgiveness of this sin. And that this opening of the eyes is to not only to deliver from Satan to the forgiveness to sins, but to an actual place amongst the sanctified of those in faith in Jesus Christ. That ultimately, my job as a witness and servant of Jesus Christ is to deliver you to the King, to deliver you to Jesus Christ. And then he summarizes again. Here in 19, verses 23, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Again, appealing that he is under a greater authority to be doing this. That once he was under the authority of the chief priest, but now he is of the authority of the great high priest, Jesus Christ, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and to all the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying both to the small and the great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. He again summarizes but articulates and goes deeper to the reason why he's on trial. Not only is the reason that he's on trial, but he's also being seized and being attempted to kill is that he has been given the authority to preach the gospel. 
And I always want to highlight wherever you see this in the scriptures, this formula of the gospel is again here, just as Jesus began his ministry by proclaiming repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven at hand. The same formula is here that he should go to both Judea and to the Gentiles and to proclaim that they are to repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. This whole idea of deeds in keeping with their repentance is to live out in the obedience of the king, to live in light of the kingdom of God, that this repenting of their sins and turning to faith in God transforms us to citizens of the king. And so these deeds in keeping with repentance is obedience to God's command, obedience to God's instruction as king, to recognize him as king over all things. And he says, this is why they're trying to kill me. Because this is the fulfillment of the very hope that they said that they had. And that is why he is proclaiming the law and the prophets. He is not proclaiming anything particularly new in the direction of what God's intent was. He is only proclaiming that this good news is the revelation of the very law and prophets that were being taught. He must preach the gospel. And we see here that Paul highlights the power of his ministry. Just as he is being a witness of Jesus Christ, he is highlighting here that there is the, that power that he encountered is what is actually fueling his ministry. That he's not there to defend himself and his ability to be smart and to be able to work with the law. That he is not ultimately trying to bring about any kind of power or following for himself. That it is not him that powers this particular ministry. But he is highlighting that this help comes from God. That just as Jesus had declared, declared to him that he says, I'm going to send you, but I'm also going to deliver you. It is also the very thing that's going to transition them into being those who follow after Jesus Christ. He presented this truth to both the small and the great. Again, this is a very much a parallel understanding that just as we see in Deuteronomy that we are to hear the small and the great, here we are given a witness to the small and the great of what their hope is because ultimately the small and the great cannot defend themselves against the Almighty God. That as they stand before God in their sin, they are going to be guilty. And so the good news needs to be proclaimed to both the small and the great because that particular fact that sin levels us all applies to us all. Therefore, the proclamation of the gospel must be given to the small and the great because the hope is for both. And I want to highlight here, just again, a reminder that as he has given this particular defense, that his calling is the gospel. And we see the gospel formula. But he says not only is he saying that it is the power of God that fuels this, but the substance of that proclamation resides in the proclamation of the law and the prophets. I want to remind us of Luke chapter 16 in verse 29 through 31. When Jesus was giving the story about Abraham and Lazarus and the rich man and how the rich man was wanting Lazarus to come and to put a, a drop of t- a water on his tongue. But then when that was rejected and Abraham explained to him the theology of the chasm that is between the rich man that was in Hades 
and Lazarus, who was at the bosom of Abraham, then Lazarus says, well, then at least have Lazarus go and proclaim to my relatives the truth so that they might believe. But then here's how Abraham responded in Luke 16, 29. It says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone would rise from the dead. If we are not proclaiming the fullness of God's revelation, then it takes away the power of the proclamation of the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that, that people can't come to the Lord just through a New Testament reading. I mean, the thief on the cross saw Jesus and said, just remember me. And then we have the confirmation from Jesus himself that he is in the kingdom. But we should have no confidence in any kind of ministry that is a New Testament only ministry. Here, Jesus himself says that to give them the law and the prophets, and if they can't understand that, they're not going to understand even someone who was raised from the dead. And here is the very heart of the matter of why these Pharisees do not get what Paul is saying. They did not get the law and the prophets. Paul is trying to point them back to the law and prophets, not because he believes that they're still under the curse of the law, but that the prophets have been fulfilled and that the law has been fulfilled ultimately in Christ, that if they would understand the whole point of the law and the prophets, then they would understand this one who came back from the dead. Because the law and the prophets teach that Jesus is the Messiah, that he had to suffer and die and be raised again. And that Jesus would be the light to the Gentiles. That these particular Pharisees would not be going after Paul because of his connection with the Gentiles. That, he would under, that they would understand that the Messiah was to, to be also shown to the Gentiles. And so as Paul is proclaiming the gospel, we again see what the natural response is going to be from the culture of the world. Festus says in verse 24, he says, you have lost your mind. It says, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But think about what Paul says in verse 25. It says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Here he is again appealing to his understanding of his audience. And this is an important thing for us to have highlighted to us, that as we are proclaiming the gospel to whoever we're proclaiming it to, we need to have an understanding of who we're talking to. I mean, any kind of legitimate conversation would call for that. That's just a, a, a regular rule of, of being considerate and understanding who your audience is. But here, Paul knows who Agrippa is. He knows his history. He knows that Agrippa is familiar with the prophets. 
He's familiar with how the Jews operate. And he thinks that if Agrippa is a student of the Word of God, if he is a student of the Law and Prophets, that there is a possibility even here that King Agrippa would have come to understand who Jesus is. That this is not something crazy, that he is speaking nothing but truth, and he is operating very rationally, but he is doing so in an understanding way that is highlighting the promises of God. I think this is important for us to also consider that in light of a lot of times when we try to appeal to people, you know, when we meet someone new and we think, okay, well, are they a Christian or are they, do they, are they atheists or are they just kind of in the middle somewhere? They're an agnostic or they say that they believe, but do they really believe or maybe they're of some other different religion or whatever it might be. As you get to know them, we often just by nature, we want to try to connect with them. And I think it's very important for us to be mindful, just as Paul is being mindful, to connect with them on things that are solid in truth. And because we live in such a pop culture world today, it is easy to try to connect with them with just pop culture references. Maybe it could be a movie or music or sports or some kind of thing that is normally what people are consumed with in their thinking. And I'm not saying that we can't make a connection with people like that, that water cooler kind of talk. But think about what Paul is doing here. Now, Paul is talking to a man that lives deep into the culture of wickedness. I've already mentioned that it is likely that he was in very much a wicked lifestyle, but he was still one who had an understanding of the Old Testament. And so Paul was not trying to to just trying to appeal to him that he would be a likable connection, but that he wanted to land in truth. And this is why I think it's very important for us to be familiar as much as we can with the Scriptures because there is so much in the Scriptures that as we listen to people talk about their lives, that we could connect with them or refer something to them that is rooted in that truth, just as Paul did with Agrippa in the understanding of justice. And so as he is speaking, Festus is over here saying, this is completely outlandish. And Paul's like, hold up. King Agrippa knows what I'm talking about. He knows this stuff. He's very aware of this. All of the things that I am talking about here, all of these things, including Jesus, you've got to keep in mind that his great-grandfather, Herod, tried to kill Jesus. I'm sure Agrippa II had plenty of understanding of the whole narrative of what's been going on with this Jesus of Nazareth. And so he was like, no, he's, this is who I'm talking to. And it says, and this is why I'm speaking to him boldly. He changes it up a little bit. He's not speaking to Festus in the same way as he's speaking to Agrippa. Agrippa knows something, and so he's connecting, and therefore he's ramping up his boldness of delivery to King Agrippa. He's stuck to more mundane things of the law with Festus, and here he is going for the question, and then he asks King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. He goes ahead and begs the question. 
He's the salesman here who doesn't pull back. You know, the, I remember in all my salesman training, you need to go ahead and ask them to buy it. Don't forget to ask them to buy it. Don't just present to them the truth. You're going to go ahead and get them to say yes. Make them be in a place where they say yes. And here he's saying, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And he actually says, I know he knew enough about King Agrippa to know that he had some kind of honor and understanding of the prophets. And he says, I know that you believe. And then Agrippa responds, He says to Paul, in a short time, you would persuade me to be a Christian? And then Paul says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Here he is showing us that this has been the primary focus, that he is not trying to just work his way to Caesar, that he is going to continue to preach the gospel to everyone he encounters every way that he can, using every resource that God has given him, every connection that God has given him. He is going to be pointing them back to the word of God and ultimately to Jesus Christ. In these are sad words, it says that in a short time you will persuade me. It almost sounds like that he was almost there. We don't know where he went from there. In some translations, it says that you would almost, that it was almost there. And we have no evidence that he actually went further with certainty. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Paul tells us that whether it takes a little or a lot of time, he's going to continue to preach the gospel. And this should be also something that we learn in the presentation of whatever we're doing, if we're helping people through their daily struggles, if we're trying to discipline a child uh, you know, as we're dealing you know, with little Jacks there and trying to know how to teach him the truth in the short period of time that we have, we're like, is this all in vain? You know, are we going to see any fruit? Where is this going to go? And we're just trying, you know, I told Jennifer today as she was coming to me with the, the difficulties of just trying to get him to to calm down sometimes, that we just try to go before the word of the Lord and pray for his mercy and just do what we can. And whether in a short time or in a long time or whether we're able to see any fruit of it at all, we have to trust the Lord because that is what is ultimately empowering all of our ministries and everything that we do. And so Paul is not trying to close the deal right then and there. He's just planting the seeds and then it's going to be up to the Lord. And that ultimately his hope is that everyone that he proclaims the truth would come to to the same place that he is, except these change, which is a kind of a play on words. But of course he, he does not want anyone to have to suffer to that extent. But at the same time, he proclaims to us that we must all suffer. So I just want to go through these last points as I close and highlight all of these particular things that we see that is going on in Paul's ministry, which is ultimately the ministry of Jesus Christ, ultimately the witness of Jesus Christ, that one that Paul understands his hearers. He relates and connects to his hearers wherever it is rooted in truth. And I think that's a very important thing that we need to understand is that wherever there is truth, it's okay to say, yeah, I used to be there, or I'm a sinner also. And it's okay to highlight those things, but he is always pointing them back to truth. 
It's not just some way to make that connection, but it is always to reroute them so that they may land in truth. Paul focuses on hope, that his hope is the thing that has got him in trouble. And so that is also the thing that he is focused on, his hope in the promises of God, his hope in the worship of God, and in the resurrection and restoration of God. It is important that we understand I've heard it said, you know, from what Paul has said in Corinthians, it says that for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. I would like to reverse the same truth there also, not reverse the truth, but reverse the same flow of that truth. That if our worship and our lives are not centered in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in the restoration and the fulfillment of his kingdom, then our lives are futile. That if if we come here looking for anything other than that particular restoration that Jesus offers for his kingdom, for the life that is being completed now and it is to come, if we are looking for Jesus just to make our life better here, then our life is truly in vain and futile. That our faith should be rooted in the fact that Jesus has been raised and what the impact that it has had. Because Paul focuses on the resurrection, not because it's some kind of magic trick, but because it is reformational. It changes everything. Christ has the power over sin and death. Christ is reigning at the right hand of God because he was raised from the dead, and therefore he is king. Christ will come as judge, and therefore there will be justice. That things that we see that are unjust this day will not continue to go on. And that is a very hopeful thing. And Christ will deliver his people as he always has. Because he has power over sin and death. And so that resurrection of Jesus Christ impacts everything. And it should be our focus. And we see that Paul recognizes and acts on that authority that has been accomplished by the resurrection of Jesus Christ in his reign. And he always preaches the gospel formula of repent and believe, to turn to God and to live as those who are turned to God by committing deeds that are are consistent with repentance, by obeying God and following God. He preaches and he trusts in the law and the prophets because it is the law and the prophets that proclaim Christ And it is the law and the prophets that assist us in knowing how to understand and to live as Christ. Paul is sober and lucid with sound reason and truth. We do not see a presentation of the gospel here that is crazy and loopy. He is very sound and he's very lucid in our presentation of the gospel, whether it's in our worship or whether it's in our lives, should be one that is full of reverence and awe of our God. And Paul is patient for God's timing. Yes, he would love for Herod to come to understanding to Christ right then and there. We would all want him in everything. We would want to see that fruit to be immediate. But whether it takes a long time or a short time, that's not what his focus is. Paul is indiscriminate to both small and the great. You know, it is often that we want to be connected and around each other. It's interesting that we just finished a um a sponsoring of a of a girl in China 
Um, she, she graduated and aged out from our sponsoring. And so I was talking to my family about, you know, maybe, maybe getting another program and picking another person. And, and I was going through and I was scrolling and looking at all of these people um, of, you know, who should we pick to sponsor and I start realizing that, you know, am I, am I gravitating to different people that I'm appealing to? Like, oh, she's cute. You know, let's, let's sponsor this girl. And I, and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make my conclusions based upon something that's appealing to me. And I think, you know, we often do that in a variety of different ways in our ministry of who we will reach out to or who we talk to or who we connect with or what kind of church we want to have and what kind of people we want to have in our church. I went to a Celebrate Recovery thing recently and I was talking to one of the leaders there and he was saying that he has actually had pastors and people from other churches say, we really like what you're doing but we don't want that in our church because we really can't have that kind of people in our midst. I was like, are you serious? That they're, they're for the ministry. They want someone else to do that kind of ministry. But they're afraid to get that close. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be, I mean, I, I, I'm not going, you know, if I'm doing jail ministry and I know someone is involved in a certain kinds of crimes and sins, I'm not going to say, oh, why don't you come over to my house with my family? No, I mean, I'm not saying that there's not wisdom there. But we are to be those who are not indiscriminate. And then Paul begs the question, just as I end this sermon, begging the question, do you believe the law and the prophets? Do you believe the presentation and the witness of Jesus Christ? And if so, is it really something that should be extraordinary to us to live like those who have a king? Would it not be consistent that the people that know us would say those people have a king that is not of this world but reigns over this world. Our lives should be extraordinary in the eyes of others because it should not be extraordinary that we're living lives like those who have been purchased by the blood of the Savior. Let us pray.